Thus, dear friends, as we depart Anchorage in late summer 1963 on a 475-mile road trip with Ralph in his stylish blue convertible, we'll split the trip over three nights to avoid too much time in the car, but it will hardly be a grind or a bore. Clark Yarrington with Frame Residential Design here in Anchorage, Alaska. May I now present, direct from an undisclosed Southern California location, Mr. Ralph Alley, architect, on our fabulous show. Remember I was heading to negotiate with Alaska Sales last time. They had dropped my car and broken it in half. And so Frank went along with me and uh, we finally made a deal. And it came out just fine. And I was able to get the blue convertible, which I immediately called Bluebird. And it was one of the most wonderful cars I ever owned. I think probably most people would love to have a lawyer to take with them when they go to a car dealership. <laughs> I know. They could talk better and faster than any of those salesmen. Yeah, that, that that situation can be the worst, you know, the first couple times, and then you sort of realize uh, what you should do and not do. It's when they sit in the closing room and go through this book of all the additions that they want to plaster onto your car. And I've learned through the years to just say, no, 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 no. And that doesn't go over big, but it's really helpful to know when to say no and that that's all you can afford. The th- one amenity that I liked about it was clean and it was a complete design. The front actually was a harbinger for the sides and the sides were a harbinger for the rear. It was a car that turned in front of you and seemed like a total sculpture to me. And it was very, very nice. 
the sixties were, um, in the mid sixties, especially probably the best era for car design. You know, they, they got free of, uh, the excesses of the previous era when they had these giant tail fins and things like that. <laughs> yes. And they were sort of just like a little restrained and classic. Well, this particular car, the 62 Buick convertible was as clean and as straightforward as few cars ever reach and design. So naturally you wanted to um, break it in with a big uh, road trip and driving down the, uh, I guess it was mostly unpaved at the time, Seward Highway, right? It was paved. Uh, oh, that's good. It was not four to six lanes. It was a two-lane road. It had all of the problems the two-lane roads have. Is But there weren't too many people with campers in those days and kind of slowing up progress. And I went down on this trip just to try out the car and to go see the uh, crash site. And it was pretty free and clear. I was a, one of the better trips I've ever taken. Unfortunately, I had, went by myself, but that even turned out to be good because I had so much flexibility. Well, I think when we get to talking about it, it will be a then and now comparison. And a lot of people who live here now have experience with driving from Anchorage to Homer. And despite there being more traffic, I think it's probably overall a little bit easier. In the 90s, they did a lot of work to straighten out the route, you know, sort of after Turnigan Pass and past the Hope Cutoff. The road used to really like wind around in these uh, hairpin turns up in the hills there and that so it's considerably faster if you're going say from Anchorage to Seward these days. There's still some other parts of the road that uh, haven't changed as much. It used to be curvaceous and claustrophobic to do that to travel to Seward. Yeah, it still is kind of nice because there's um, sections like where when you get closer to Seward and you drive through this um, little town there called Moose Pass, and yes. there are some sections where you have to go 30 or 35 miles per hour and you kind of go across these narrow bridges and stuff, and it's it's kind of charming. Do you know if Moose Pass will allow gas stations? I remember that the folk who lived there was very small then, wouldn't let any commercial stuff in there. It was, it was kind of a, a place that was against the way things are. I can't remember if there's a gas station there now. I think probably not. You know, you, you have to get gas in Girdwood, really, and make it all the way to uh, Seward. Yeah. Seward. Uh, although there's a, there's a gas station in Hope. Yeah, I remember stopping at uh, Moose Pass one time to get a, a six pack of beer. I don't drink now, but I, but I did then, it, you know, around like 1986 or so. And so I went, there was a place that uh, had a sign there that said there was a liquor store and I went inside. And um, so there was, there was a set of stairs there and I went upstairs and it was a classic thing with a bunch of old men and a black dog, like sitting around a pot bellied stove, you know? <laughs> yes. And so I inquired about the liquor store, and the and the guy just sort of like pointed his thumb toward this like um, ancient refrigerator in the corner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I opened it up, and there's a there's a few cases of uh, cheap beer in there. That was That's their idea of a liquor store. A Norman Rockwellian painting that you're describing. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yes, but anyway, I started out on my trip. We keep referring to this book that no one ever has read or hasn't read, but I think the descriptions might be 
well suited to your voice. And uh, it would be the chapter that starts out, An Odyssey Without Idiots. <laughs> An Odyssey Without Idiots. Work done, summer's on, top down. Blue beauty joins the breeze rushing fresh toward Kenai Peninsula wonders. First road trip in my over four years in Alaska. Curiosity drives this odyssey. Fifteen miles due east of the road, halfway between Clam Gulch and the Nilchik is the crash site. Beyond Rabbit Creek, Edgewater, and Anchorage's Bull's spacious open field are spellbinding curves. Along a two to four mile wide saltwater outreach off the inlet, the Seward Highway twists to tuck tight against the low water's edge. Turnigan Arms steep green slopes crush close on both sides. Higher and farther, bare granite hovers. Granite, higher yet, has snow. Quick turns over shifts in road elevations elevations set in motion a widened to narrow interplay delivering perpetual scenic surprise. Across the shore level are Hope's white building specks. Behind the village is a wide inclined land plain where above vanishes between interlocking mountain slopes. Next to road shore on the right are railroad tracks. Over left, a log shack. Poking out a loft-like gable end opening, a large blue-colored bird, maybe paper mache, has a long orange bill with a sill with sill dangled toes, if birds have toes. No doubt the notorious birdhouse, a crude sawdust floored tavern. Reported our walls covered with business cards, bumper stickers, and by offering free drinks to gals, garnered with their underpants. On down the road beside the train tracks, a wooden gas station. Ahead is the famed sign, one-eighth mile to Girdwood. Been looking for that. At left, a rock scarp walling the road accuses the arms' vast far-end tidal flats that accommodate among world's highest tides. Tall but sparse tree growth ring the flats as far as can see. Girdwood's turn toward Alieska exchanges light for shadows and shade under thick tree growth between steep, maybe two-mile-apart, parallel ridge systems. Course has to have slopes that plummet at critical angles for skiing, but here sides cram at the valley floor. This single road starts a meander, passing small structures scattered along the way. People in Anchorage boast weekend ski cabins in this community. Summer. Ski lift is operating and moving people to sports mountain scars. The day lodge is wood, with ample glass facing the slope. Inside volume is barn-like. Lunch being served. Truly ready. After, Bluebird and I beeline from snug Alieska to escape for highways ensuing dozen miles. Higher speeds cure. Slowing at Turnigan's tip for Portage Glacier's turn is a junction community where dense spruce shades several moderate-sized wood buildings. Toward the glacier, close parallel ridges, as at Alieska, shuttle the way in. Arriving, the wind has exotically shaped truck-sized icebergs blown each across Portage Lake and forces them against the parking lot as hostage. Incredulous blue-green fluorescence glows from the floating ice. The visible glacier straight across isn't it. Portage, said out of sight on around the lake's bend, is it. With the main glacier hidden, a long concrete block building advertising food and coke closed. A dark, quite deep train tunnel through the mountain to Whittier. 
inspire six-mile backtracking imperative for open roads. Rejoining the Seward is deliverance. I want to just say, every time I've been to Portage, until the last time I was there, I always had this need to leave it <laughs> because of, of that feeling that that was the end of the road. Yeah, and usually the weather was um, contributing to that feeling as well. I remember going there several times where it was a perfectly nice day until you got down there to Portage Lake, and then it would be like um, raining and um, you know horizontal uh, horizontal rain and wind. There's a boat on that now, I believe. Yeah, you can take a boat, so you can actually see the glacier, glacier which has receded uh, way up and around the corner and halfway up the mountain. Yeah. Okay, resuming. Let's see. Completing the hook about Jernigan's far end, a hasty 90-degree swing leaving sea level is unannounced. An eight-mile cloistered, albeit steady climb to a summit, produces hasty downward broad curves in dimensions afforded by canyons and crests. Stream and lake reflections gleam from out an immense opaque geology that summit onward to places unseen. Access to Kenai's Sterling Highway slivers from the Seward, taking a slow, easy bend into a Hemming Canyon. Curves coiled toward Lake Kenai's turquoise allure and veer onto its northern shore. On around, turning off and up a steep dirt side road is our point of view lodge by Cooper Landing. A wooden balustered stairway and mezzanine visually greet within a rustic two-story space. In farther, curved, sunken, fully cushioned seating about a room-commanding fireplace. Fieldstone surrounds the large firebox opening. The same facing mounts up on the chimney to a high ceiling which cinches mood-provoking rusticity. Lake's visible element dominates view from interior windows. Too good to leave, worthy staying the night. Dinner done. Guests unwind, sitting about our point of view's magnetizing fireplace and fire. Sun's long evening does dim, talk winds down, our fire fades. Upstairs, ready for bed, I open windows for sleep, caressed by a summer night's lake air. Our point of view lodge is one of the treasures that's been lost. That used to be a, a great stop and always uh, seemed to afford a comfortable uh, feeling and uh, great visual warmth. And uh, I really appreciated having that in Alaska or on that trip. Yeah, I finally um, was able to uh, stop in at that little museum that I have that they have there um, after several times of going by, and it was closed. So I just happened by at the right time one time and went in and looked around. And I think they've got a lot of um, material in there about that place. And um, yeah, it's it, it's too bad that it. Uh, didn't uh, make it into the modern era there there is kind of a fancy um hotel there now that's up on that upper road to uh and i forget what it's called there's a canyon in behind is it in there yeah you can um it it's kind of perched up above and so when you're driving on the main road you can see it across on the other side of the river and up on top of a cliff as you go by mm-hmm. anyhow so you've spent the night and uh, now are waking up the next morning. An aromatic coffee, egg, bacon snare lays wait in the lobby. Last evening's meal still holds that'll change after going a distance in the open air. From the lodge's deck, sky, water, mountain spark morning's blue turquoise green and wait for a full day. 
Sun's gold brushes early across granite and snowy peaks, standing up far and proud. On the road, over a steel bridge, already fishermen with small boats have started their day. Sun's brush dips down over rivers and lakes. Watery shapes and patterns glow marvelous gold against their boundaries, an intrigue so absorbing that Don's trek from suburb verticality onto a broad open expanse goes unnoticed. Distinct mountain shapes in rear's mirrored view fast fade as a far-back monolith, but ahead, peaks pop up and down over a road's rolling surface. Dense white-barked aspen crowd against the highway and skitter to sides, framing gorgeous scenic tableaus. The way varies about due west until a decided bend south. After the small town Soldatna, Kenai River's green water rushes in position to slip under the road's coming bridge. Have you ever marveled at that blue-green Kenai Lake? And, it, and the Kenai River, it is really extraordinary to see that color in the water. It seems not quite the way water should be colored, but it certainly is gorgeous. Oh, definitely. I was just down in Kodiak for a couple of days, and a lot of times it depends on the t- time of day and the exact conditions, but um, the ocean looks a little bit like that there. The only times I've been to Kodiak, it's been gray. I once took the ferry system there in 30-foot seas to and from. (laughs) It wasn't the most pleasurable trip. Yeah, that sounds kind of crazy. I don't get seasick unless it's, uh, well, uh, I don't think I ever have been, but I could kind of feel it coming on like if this gets any worse, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We we didn't get sick either, but there were, we had what they called a stateroom, which had its own bathroom, which was the kind of bathroom you look into and say, must I? <laughs> but you do go in there. But gosh, people who were out sitting on the decks and the lobbies and things really got sick, and it was pretty gruesome. Yeah, I guess you have to just keep your eye on the horizon and um, uh, know that this too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> Upon crossing, paved travel straightens at a southwest run. Clam Gulch's high bluff edges appear. Looming large across the small harbor is a lighthouse atop a high south bluff. What's across the harbor from Clam Gulch is Mount Redoubt, and it's a beautiful vision of it. It's the first in line of a volcanic lineup that are all in cone shape. Redoubt joins Iliamna and Augustine as it marches out toward the Gulf of Alaska. And I finally got to halfway between Clam Gulch and Anilchik and stopped the car and there's no traffic. I went out to the center of the road to see if I could peer that way east into the backcountry and see Lake, this huge Lake Testamina and the crash site. And there was nothing but a high hill. And there, I think that all of that is so hidden. Uh, I was, even the idea of what would happen to, say, Abe and Dan, if they happened to make it out to the road, they would have this formidable height they'd have to climb in order to get to the roadway. It always surprised me <laughs> that that hill was there. Why don't we interrupt this journey to insert our first break, and then we'll come back in a minute and uh, see if we want to pick up uh, reading or skip a couple pages or something. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our own version of Cole Porter's Begin the Begin. Begin the Begin. 
Dear listeners, this is Alley Audiovision with Clark Yarrington and Ralph Alley. I continue to read from Ralph's book in the middle segment as we make our way from Nanilchik to Homer and then across the bay. And finally, detour into Seward on the return leg of the journey. Exotic copper onion domes topping a white, green-trimmed Russian Orthodox church prompt turning right. The way down into hilly Nanilchik follows a narrow, wiggling river. Centered in the village, a tiny wood building with a hanging sign, Troika Inn, climbing wooden steps onto the porch I enter. Unexpected are lace tablecloths, silver, and an overall sweet fragrance. Side-draped windows soften Cook's water views. Chandeliers and oriental rugs transport. Polished Russian samovars round out this astonishing journey in time and place. On an antique table, a samovar with a pot on top is stoked and ready for pouring hot spiced tea into saucered china teacups. Russian thin egg souffle blini cakes, each different with sour cream, blueberry, and jam fillings, are served with fresh smoked salmon slabs. One memorable breakfast. The quaint, busy fishing community casts its spell. Each direction, a village glimpse captivates. Visible from the small boat harbor is a lighthouse atop a high south bluff. On the town's north hill is St. Innocent Orthodox Church's exotic architectural shapes in command over an enthralling setting. Closer exposes the structure's fragility and age. A low white picket fence surrounds the churchyard and tiny cemetery. From across this prominent hilltop is Inlet's dominant Alaska range as a breathtaking close-up. Nanilchik and on, the sterling hugs lands highs and lows for miles. Across the inlet, impressive snowy crags tease with theater along the route's coastal in-out bluff overlooks. Before anchor points cut off, the road takes a southeast turn that climbs and bends inland. Travel roller coasters through where tall tree stands are on one side, switch to the opposite, then beyond both for total forested segments. Ahead, the horizon evolves. Remarkable peaks from someplace jet upward and vanish. Ascending this time dissolves Hill's Crown into a widescreen panoramic burst from way east to west high above Kachmak Bay. Across, low and towering Alpian crests compose a stupendous scenic backbone. The loftiest hold immense ice fields from where glaciers slip down around immovable lower pinnacles on the way. This side, down far below, a single narrow landsliver extends halfway across the bay's width. The coastal climate here harbors lush tree growth and hillsides covered with warm-colored wildflowers, contrasting with the scene's overall cooler towns. At one time, you told me, Clark, that you spent much time down in that area, like on weekends, with your dad. Is that right? Yeah, he always wanted to live there full time. When things got really slow in the 80s recession, he decided there's not that much keeping me here in Anchorage anyway. And he had he had built a house down there in 83. And so he did live there full time from, um, oh, I don't know, 80, 85 to about 1990 or so. Around 90, like work was kind of picking back up. And so he came back to Anchorage. And he also... Um, lost that house down there when he he got divorced from his uh, wife after my mom in 1990. <laughs> the the wife's lawyer ended up with the house, something like that. <laughs> I, that's the way things go, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but one thing, you must have traveled this road with him 
quite a number of times and, and has saw it in its this earlier form, right? Yeah, I can remember that a little bit. I think the first time we went to Homer was like 1971, and it was mm-hmm. uh, considerably less um, uh, built up than it is now, you know. But yeah, I made a few trips with them over the years. I remember driving down there with them one time in the winter into about 1990 or so, and we're driving in his car, and he's driving in the car as a uh, Lincoln. It was really uh, snowy, and um, we were driving up into Turnigan Pass from Portage, and um, and I'm kind of looking around and going, I don't know how you can be going so fast and know where you're going, you know, because it's like we can't see more than like 10 or 15 feet in front of the car, and he's like, oh, well, the road goes up here for a ways, and then it turns right, and, you know, he just had complete confidence in the whole thing because he'd <laughs> driven it so many hundreds of times, he probably knew where every little dip and pothole was, and I, I thought it was pretty amazing. Where was his house in uh, Homer? It was out on the East End Road, so it was, um, oh, I don't know how many miles it was out there, like uh, two or three. There was this, um, the landmark that was nearest there was this place, which I think was called the Catchmack Roadhouse or something like that. Building's oh. still there, but it's some other restaurant now. But it, it was uh, outside of the city limits, but um, it was on the part of the East End Road where um, every place just has a fantastic view. That may have been on the 70 acres that we went down to look at in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Could easily been out there. It was on that slope, and the views were amazing, too. Yeah. <laughs> and in um, modern times, I um, went down there to Homer quite a bit as well because I started uh, dating this woman who lived there. The relationship didn't go on past about four years, but from um, 2010 to 2014, I was going down there myself like every couple weeks. So the views down there are pretty familiar to you. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I know the area pretty well. Your descriptions of it are really apt, you know. It's uh, just a a super lush uh, environment. I had a brother-in-law. My sister's husband had an airplane, and one time he flew down there with my sister and met my wife and I and flew us across over those glaciers. That was so wonderful. I still remember looking down at those crevasses and things, and he was very knowledgeable about Alaska from the air, and uh, that was a close-up that I have replayed in my mind many times. Mm-hmm. So you think I had to read some more of this passage here? Got another couple of pages. Oh, sure, because I think Homer is well worth uh, spreading around and letting people hear about it. I think where we just left off, didn't we just come in at the top of the hill there looking down over the down at the uh, view i think so yeah so let's see uh how about how about we pick it up again here after rest and shower dinner and driving the hill call my last descent into homer had a marine layer nipping at plains tail Tonight, clear skies and an open car make glorious every angle viewed on a descent reinforcing Homer's good press as the Garden of Alaska. Wood buildings append a quaint seaside village. The roads turn south shocks, heads over the beach to its edge. From there, a crude wet rock roadbed bridges to the spit proper. Water bodies move in and grace both car sides. Ocean air refreshes 
sea smells intoxicate. Summer's northwest bright sky behind intensifies mountain formations ahead. A full moon suspends over east, suffusing a rippled vertical line on the bay. Late day's sun, golden incoming waves slap against low rock edges down at right. Distant buoys clang, lazy under flying seagull squawks perfecting enchantment. Reaching the spit's main, land widens leftward and the road takes a slight shift that way, passing land dedications for fishing and camping. Small weathered gabled shanties with homemade signs advertise fishing and food offerings. A shingled tapered lighthouse has a simple attached log structure, announcing in large letters on the roof's rake plane, Salty Dog Saloon. Dog is spelled D-A-W-G, by the way. Is it that the way they spell it down there? Yeah, and and that's one place that's uh, still there and is every bit as good as it uh, ever was, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Well, when you go there, you just have to go there. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's so compelling to uh, see. Well, during the time in um, 2010 to 2014, when I was going down there quite frequently, I felt like a local because a lot of times uh, the local people don't really go to the spit. They don't have any reason to. Well, even then, it was filled with tourists way back in the 60s. That's one place everybody goes to mm-hmm. uh, who is visiting Alaska. Everywhere, ground surfaces are gravel and rock. Road's narrow paving veers left toward the spit's east side. A right turn reveals hulls and masts that signal a sizable harbor. A Land's End sign points the way to dinner out there. Spit's End at Kachemak Bay's center. Having dinner seated next a large window, amazing views across bring on a kid memory seeing Wyoming's Tetons from inside the Church of Transfiguration. Did you ever see that, Clark, in uh, Wyoming? It's a log church. No, I remember you mentioned once before that you thought the K-Bay view in the mountains across the way were very similar to the Tetons. Oh, they are. They have, they have that kind of look, I think, that jagged rustic quality mm-hmm. but it is sure a beautiful beautiful sight from uh, land's end morning's tide is high we use care boarding between spit stable marina dock and unsteady open excursion vessel crossing we pass by land's end hotel on pilings the wood structure and current water level create illusion the hotel is floating fast by us fooling all all our eyes. Kachemak's south shore isn't far, and from here appears as a formidable, massive, wide, and high rock fortress. Near, openings appear, revealing waterways for moving through. Venturing one passage and navigating beyond are more rock-bluffed islands. Cantilevered off one is an outhouse with a large west-facing picture window, a local point of interest. Did you see that? Have you? It was a, an amazing structure up there. <laughs> no, I must uh, I must have missed that, or it's not there anymore. Well, the excursion boats made sure everybody saw it, and it was a, a kind of a beautiful thing to see out there, <laughs> high above. Farther, irregular shorelines define numerous smaller water bodies. Maneuvering an indirect hodgepodge course, we dock at Halibut Cove. Upward wood ramps serve the top small houses and shores joined by wood plank walkways. A couple, Cove residents, invite passengers in for our voyage's morning break. Served in generous helpings are the Cove's specialty, uncooked 
blueberry pie. A delicious and wonderfully fresh treat. That, that is good. And we have the recipe. We, <laughs> I told my wife about it after we were married, and she says, I'm going to find that recipe, and I'm going to get it. And she did. And I don't know how many times we've had it in these through the years. I had an apple pie that wasn't uh, cooked down in a restaurant in Girdwood a few years ago, and I'd never had that before, and it was awesome. Yes, that's the way this is. I think I sent you the recipe some weeks back. For the blueberry pie. Yeah, well, if I get really ambitious, I can go up to Eagle River and hike up Baldy and see if there are any uh, blueberries up there. It's the right time of year for it. It is. It's getting there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's already already here for sure. The boat trip delays my leaving Homer. The trip's next 160-mile leg retraces road back to the Seward Highway. Sterling's scenic reverse looks fresh, but from the junction south toward Seward is through difficult terrain. Planning passage for this road and railroad undeniably challenged the era's engineer, constructor, and machine. Tall, sheer slopes collide and constrict passage to narrow canyons. Continual blending and connections form a labyrinth, linking small lakes and streams as in, as in an unbroken water chain. Twirled miles about coned mountain bases from serpentine confinement that gradually unwinds, widens, and breaks wide open east, accommodating Resurrection Bay's north end. A harbor, boats, dock with tall cranes, railroad tracks, and boxcars herald Seward's commercial vitality. Rimming the bay on three sides are sloped tree-laden banks that elevate to soar and subdivide as twisted towering stone in irregular shapes. Lofty sawtoothed mountain caps dwarf the small town jammed on a shelf against Resurrection's northwest edge. Older, one, two, even three-storied flat-roofed structures with sparse ornamentation flavor Seward's town center. Pervasive is a curved eyebrow element over windows and doors. The Van Gilder Hotel is a prominent, a quick find, a check-in. The interior harkens back to earlier Alaska. An easy imagining is these very spaces once accommodated engineers who planned this incredible passage for both rail and road from here on north. What time you told me you had been in the Van Gilder Hotel or stayed there, maybe. Yeah, I I stayed a night there um, once when um, made a kind of a random spontaneous road trip during the winter with a, a woman who I knew at the time. About eighty four, I think that was. Yeah, it was it was a neat place. Bathroom down the hall. Yes, it's like that. But the other thing is the visual of it. Those curtains, <laughs> Victorian curtains. I sometimes look at that kind of interior. I've been in a number of bed and breakfasts uh, in years since, and it always, my mother was a registered nurse, and she would always go into places like that and want to clean them. And it was hard to get her to relax on trips because she thinks there's dust everywhere. And it had that quality. It had almost a tawdry quality to it. But it, in retrospect, it was really unique and fun yeah it had the like pink fuzzy wallpaper the with the fleur-de-lis and uh, wallpapers. yeah stuff like that <laughs> and the furnishings <laughs> and the coverings everything the blend of all that together was really another transportation to another era let's pop in our second break here and then come back for another 20 minute session and then wrap this episode up okay <laughs> 
in the third part of Alley Audio Vision, 1963 is winding down and winter is upon us once more. Ralph learns of President Kennedy's assassination while he is at work on a quiet day. In order to improve the mood of what has been a bittersweet year of triumph and tragedy, Ralph plans a festive Christmas party for friends at his downtown Anchorage apartment. Clark, after that trip to the Kenai Peninsula, I had heard of how beautiful and wondrous the peninsula was, and everything I saw and did there certainly sustained that idea and that ideal of the Kenai Peninsula, and I hope it never gets spoiled. But after a return, there was always work building up, and I was still working uh, days at Manly and Mayer, doing my own thing, and there was this one morning and it was November. It was a usual November, sandwiched uh, between November's expanding dark and sunlit scarcity. Outside, all the snow looked really gray. And in the office, there was this hibernating stupor. It just seemed to grip everything that was happening inside. But the quiet was very, very heavy, and it just hung there. Of course, if you've been in drafting rooms, um, there's all these clicks with parallel bars and, and uh, adjustable triangles. And when it's quiet, you can hear the click, click of people snapping this angle and that angle. And But the quiet was broken by those kind of clicks. And it was really dead. And usually Fridays were a little more cheerful because the weekend was close. Soft-spoken Manly, he's always calm, regardless of what happened, what time of day. He was such... A gentleman about everything but this right now right now he walks into the room as fast as I've ever seen him move and he was talking loud Kennedy has been shot four words command this simultaneous attention among all of us like no other four words could ever happen and the stupor was immediately transformed to immediate disbelief all of us stand up and voicing the same question is he alive Manley's face darkens. When I came in here was the first I knew they were giving Kennedy last rites. He's dead. Let's go for an early break together. We need walking outdoors. We need coffee. And we can go over to Charles Drugs and talk about what's happened and get used to it. I'll buy it. Of course, we all did that. And I just couldn't re or refuse the memory of my own young life during uh, World War II's vivid years. Processing this unspeakable act just attacks my spiritual confidence in others. Seems America's inside has gone mad without giving notice until this morning. Who's out there? And who can we or cannot trust? And that, even in respect to things happening today, Clark, that was the beginning for me of seeing things happening in our country that undermined kind of a personal happiness that I enjoyed maybe within my own head. And you may not remember that. I don't know. No, it, um, when he was, uh, assassinated, I was, uh, like, uh, somewhere between three and four years old. So I didn't, yeah, I don't remember it. You're such a young <laughs> thing. I'm only 60. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm 109. Yeah. My birthday comes up on Sunday, by the way. So that certainly is always 
depressing yeah, in a way. 109 and your friends probably tell you you don't look a day over 95, huh? <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, the thing, probably one of the last things that ever happened there in the apartment of the Chichaco Bar is, uh, you remember Virgin Joy, they, they were my first clients that they did had that six-sided house up on the hill, and they had this argument going on and on and on, whether the spruce tree in front was just a little bit in or too far in the driveway. One day, they took a mare axe to that tree and ended their contention and declared that the tree was going to become their six-sided house's third Christmas tree and the bottom was going to be firewood. Well, once I heard that, I thought and in kind of a vision that maybe I could use the lower remains of that tree and spread some holiday cheer prior ending, or at least not letting it end as a, as a fireplace suit. I have a lot of friends up in Anchorage who are single and were dating. They didn't go outside because it took so long to take a quick holiday out with plane travel as required by Alaska location. So I decided to maybe have a party on Christmas morning. And I composed a guest list and sent out invitations, which I designed and and mailed and got accepted. And the party was on. I unbolted and removed the table legs off of the dining table that Tony Luth, who was that contractor for the uh, Brits way early in on, uh, had made up for me. I got some concrete blocks and put them smack in the middle of that white rug in the living room. I took the measurement from the top of that up to the ceiling and gave it to Verge. And he and one of his student football players transported and lugged that newly cut height tree, the bottom of it, up the back stairs to the apartment. And the thick base is fixed right on top of that table on the eating surface. And the branches, the lower branches were wide around and they actually um, were against the ceiling and they kept the tree upright. You had to stoop a little to get under it, but uh, it could happen and did. And once the lights were put on, the patterns were beautiful uh, over the ceiling and walls and and they would just project uh, shadows. I went down the street to uh, Woolworths and bought some decorations and they were like pearl chains and crystalline snowflakes that were plastic and stuck them on the trees and they just moved when you turn the lights on some of them are very close to the spruce needles and they would project these really close beautiful needles uh, shadows and shapes onto the ceiling and walls and then you had all this other motion from the uh, decorations moving around it was spectacular more spectacular than I ever thought it could be so for the party i I rented an electric organ. I later bought a piano from the gal uh, that had the uh, piano and organ shop down on 4th, but I hired a musician. She somewhat uh, completed the whole idea of what I thought could happen. And I decided to serve Helen Gibbonese. She was a gal at Studio One, her recipe for bacon-wrapped baked eggs. And she assured me that I didn't have to be a cook, which I'm not, and that I would have, she always used this word, fabulous results. She always was fabulous everything. <laughs> and so the final 
Philippe from the whole thing was to serve champagne for his breakfast. So Alaska's long black night pushes into Christmas morning and Dan's early knock at the door is for helping Frank and I get festivities started. The next door knock, our organist, a 70-ish stylish lady claiming her forte is plays any song in any key anyone wants. Fueled with fresh coffee, Evelyn, which was her name, breaks in our dark morning quiet with a few fingers poking at the organ keyboard, then swells the room with music, pressing all fingers and both feet on keyboards high and low. Answering door knock after door knock, the room soon swells with guests, and Christmas begins. Under spreading spruce magic, guest and organist Evelyn sit on floor's white rug against walls and around the low tabletop. We three hosts cook and serve Helen's recipe, where results corroborate her word, fabulous. December's low sun beams midday arcs, highest intensity through 4th Avenue's south windows. The bright and warmth deliver a festive peak. Appetites gratified. Music inspires champagne courage, egging on impromptu vocals and performance. Sounds like so much fun. Must have smelled good, too, with the kind of a fresh-cut tree as a centerpiece. Oh, yeah. It, it was probably one of the more festive Christmases I have experienced, before or after. The sun's, you know, short visit, it leaves, and it blends quick, and then with the lights, and too soon, signs off and goes away for the color shadow show that that tree gives off on the walls and ceiling, and it confounds the room and everybody in it once again. The celebration starts softening like all parties like that do, and settles back in days late quiet, then ends. Frank and Dan and I pick up and clean and kitchen, and which was wiped out. It doesn't take much for that crowd to wipe out a kitchen. And Dan's forever thinking style comes forward suggesting we buy or lease a large house together. An immediate thought about whether our collective chemistry is disaster prone like Homer. But anyway, we left it in the air. Dan left with a maybe. Late afternoon's dark deepens and Alaska's long black night begins. And that was the end of the festivities for Fourth Avenue's great apartment over the Chichaco Bar. It's a good way to uh, end things there on kind of a festive note, right? I think so. Well, just as an aside, uh, I guess my reaction is um, I think by far the worst part of uh, the job that I have is um, feeling like I'm at least partly responsible for trees getting cut down. <laughs> and uh, this would be especially true for Kodiak. You know, I'm walking through the woods down there and oh, I'm looking God. at these giant spruces and just like, I, you know, I could stop and fall in love with each and every one of them. I know. <laughs> It's really, it's really tough, you know. It's like if, I wish I could do this and uh, not have to cut down one single other tree ever. Well, you and I, I'm not what I would call in today's idea of an environmentalist, but I have always regretted chopping trees down. And I just have a great appreciation for nature. And you can tell that by my writing. I love everything that is out there, basically everything. But mm -hmm. uh, trees are one thing I have had to deal with in the years I've done architecture, like you. Yep, just part of the game, I guess. Got to learn to accept it and uh, um, deal with it. Let, let me ask you about your uh, project down there. 
oh, well, um, I'll tell you what, let's talk about it next time because I think we're about out of time. But yeah, I'd love to uh, tell you a little bit about how that's going to turn out. I've uh, just uh, kind of getting started on it, but I think it'll uh, be um, something good by the time I'm done. Well, keep me posted. All right. Sounds good. Well, it's, uh, as usual, wonderful speaking with you, Ralph. And vice versa. Missed missed you uh, in the time we haven't talked. Yeah, I think we were a bit ambitious uh, in the beginning, thinking we would do these podcasts every week, and it's turned out to be uh, much less than that. But, um, you know, we're, uh, we we got time here. We'll uh, do some more, and um, I guess we're going to be probably leading up to the 64 earthquake here pretty soon in the next couple will. of them. Yes. Yeah. So We're we'll, just about there. Looking forward to the next big disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like my life had a number of them like that. Yep. Well, it makes for good reading and um, uh, interesting stories. Thank you.
or about Ralph Alley on his website, artechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph is going through some rewrites and embellishments in a book he is composing about his Alaska career and experiences. This has been Alley AudioVision, episode 10 recorded, April 21st, 2020. Great to have you along for the ride, dear friends.